This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. Yes, let's do that. Welcome back to the first real episode of 50 miles per hour. You know, I thought I would start this entire endeavor with a good overview of speed to set us on our way. As you know, the film itself starts with that wonderful opening credit sequence in the elevator shaft accompanied by a suite of Mark Mancina's score. It's sort of a musical journey, reflective of the narrative journey that the audience is about to take, you know, like all of the bits and pieces of the movie are in there. And I'll dig into that with Mark and Jan de Bont in due time, but I wanted to do something similar here and kick things off with a sort of holistic discussion of speed and all its moving parts. Who better, then, to help contextualize this movie and its place in the canon than with our preeminent film critic? And I swear I'm not just saying that because he's a friend of mine. Justin Chang is a film critic for the Los Angeles Times and NPR's Fresh Air. He's also a regular contributor to KPCC's Film Week, and he was formerly the chief film critic at Variety, where we were colleagues. He serves as the chair for the National Society of Film Critics and the secretary of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Oh, and he's also a fellow Trojan from USC. Good football team lately. Fight on. Anyway, don't trust my bona fides, obviously trust his. Justin knows what he's talking about, and I think he's the perfect person to have this discussion with, because not only is he a huge fan of speed, and certainly he's of the generation that finds it seminal in some ways and simply nostalgic in others, but he's not a dismissive mind. He's willing to dig into something that might just be waved off as a pop culture curio and just have the conversation. So let's go ahead and bring him in here. Justin, uh, you know, Speed is an interesting case because when you embark on something like this, with a movie like this, the question is why? How was it revolutionary? How did it change things? And it's sort of hard to go there with speed because it was made, and I do love it for this, at the height of a number of filmmaking techniques that were either on their way to becoming antiquated or were certainly evolving well beyond that place. It was sort of the peak of something, as opposed to a watershed that explicitly influenced things that came after it. Although there's nuance and debate within even that broad analysis, and I'm only just talking about the craft there anyway, but the point is, that doesn't mean it's any less worthy of being in the canon. So let me just put it to you. Uh, What is Speed's place in the modern context? And just jump off from there, take it wherever it takes you. I think, building off what you were saying, um, I'll just say it's funny because I watched the movie again last night and it hadn't been that long since I'd seen it. I think I watched it again, like I revisit it every so often, just purely for the pleasure of it. And But I think last night was the first time I watched it all the way through um, in a while. And... You know, I'm usually very maybe suspicious or dubious of the they don't make them like this anymore argument or sentiment. But I really got that sense from it, watching it last night. And it was hugely emotional, um, actually. I find 
it's like after watching Speed, I just kind of want to cry partly because of just the incredible just wor- adrenaline workout that it gives you even after all these years. I mean, it's just just the level of of preparation, of craftsmanship, of as you were saying, you know, just use of 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 miniatures, of practical, real in camera effects pre-CGI or just not, you know, very, very minimal CGI. And that's, of course, what Jan de Bont is all about. Um, and directors, you know, and, and of course, the whole McTiernan, uh, just that that era of action directors, blockbuster directors. Um, it's funny, too, because this movie was not made to be a blockbuster. It was the studio had very, from what I understand, fairly low, you know, just kind of reasonable expectations for it. Oh, maybe this will be. Yeah. And then it became the sleeper. And then it became the smash. They were focused on true lies. Yes. And we're not expecting that speed would actually compete with true lies at the box (laughs) office when all was said and done. And, um, and is maybe the one of the two, even that we remember more fondly perhaps, um, Mm -hmm. which is saying something. And I, I, I get this just it exactly, as you said, Chris, I mean, it it feels like the peak, like the apex of something, which is remarkable too, considering it is Yandemont's debut feature as a director. I think there's something about that too. The fact that this movie was, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, just, it's like the greatest B movie, and it's it, it had those those were the expectations for it, and so they put you know someone who, who was a, a career cinematographer uh, first and foremost directing for the first time, and I mean there's a whole conversation you could have, of course, too about cinematographers turned directors and what they bring, and how so many I know <laughs> I know Devant has said this too about how disgruntled many cinematographers are and mm-hmm. wanting to tell their own stories and actually being as good as directors and doing a huge amount of the work of a director, but never getting the credit. And so I think the fact that he was, um, you know, attached to this after I, I guess countless other directors had passed on it and what he brings to it. I don't know. It's just, it's funny because the movie is not showy in the way that you might expect a cinematographer to directing a movie to bring to it, but it's, as I was just watching it, it just, there was always a sense of like, oh, this camera is just in the right place the whole time in this movie. It's just every moment of it feels, it feels like a very reductive thing to say. It just, it feels real. Um, and, and it's just, I'm getting, I'm getting away from your original question, but I do think it feels ever more like the last, yeah, the last gasp of, I mean, it's not like it was the very last of its kind. It was still, you know, mid nineties, of course, you know, the nineties were of course a, a, a terrific decade for action cinema, but it, it was the pre, pre CGI glut, pre, you know, certainly superhero, you know, mentality where that was all that Hollywood was doing or what, what really captured Hollywood's attention the most. Um, I also think it, as far as legacy go, it, it, it's one of the great romantic movies, I think, of its kind. Um, I just think that Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, who were both sort of, you know, perhaps fairly new and undervalued at the time, um, and the fact that their their screen pairing is just... Um, one of the things that when I talked to Jan Debont, he wasn't even sure that he just knew, he knew. He knew they would be good together, but I don't think anyone were, expected that it would become this sort of iconic pairing. It's That's just one of the, the happy byproducts of it, but I also think it's very it's very central to the great appeal of the movie as well. I mean, this movie is just doing the definition of firing on all cylinders, you know, juggling a hundred things behind its back and, and, and it's just, uh, yeah. And with ease too, like I feel, and sorry to jump in, I feel like it makes all of this look easy. You know, they did it for 28 million officially, uh, and, and that creeped up eventually, but that's insane to think about. And that's not nothing, but still, um, and let me throw a couple of points out here. First of all, regarding Sandra, if there's any broad legacy, it's her, right? 
because it made her a movie star. You know, you talk to people on the movie, to a person, everyone fell in love with her, and she was necessary, as it turns out, for the camaraderie of that cast. And what I find compelling, just in terms of how it works, is that it shouldn't work. And I'll come to this a number of times along the way, but as it exists on the page, Speed violates every single rule. There's no character arc. He learns nothing whatsoever. She learns nothing whatsoever. No one changes in any classic sort of way, so you literally just watch a guy do his job for two hours. And part of it is the breakneck nature of the movie, of course, and that's what Jan de Bont's able to bring to it as a world-class cinematographer. As you say, knowing exactly where to put the camera for maximum impact. But on the page, it should not work, and I think everyone kind of felt that in the critical community, but they didn't care. Like, they understood that this was a movie that cooked, and that it was a specimen because of that. I mean, look at that Anthony Lane review in the New York. I, I, I was just rereading the Anthony Lane review today, and he, he lays it out so nicely. He says, its characters are no more than sketches. It addresses no social concerns. It's mo- it is morally inert. It's the movie <laughs> of the year. And I just remember, too, Chris, because I saw this movie when I, I would have been, you know, 94, I would have been like 11 or 12 or something. I remember, I remember just the excitement with which people were talking about it. And there was a high concept thing to it because it was like, oh, it's the movie that's all set on a bus. You know, mm-hmm. and that's and it's funny because when you watch it, actually, it's not all. Of course, it's not all set on the bus. There's a very, you know, it's I don't know if you call it a clean three act structure, but it's actually, you know, it's like elevator, bus, subway. You know, you whatever. get two movies out of it. You get a lot of bang for your buck. But but it feels like, and the way the movie even plays with time too, and mm-hmm. just the fact. But and I think that that kind of yeah, the if you call it like a one location movie, which is ridiculous because it's all over Los Angeles, of course. But the one set or the one the one vehicle. Uh, mm-hmm. location, there is something that is feels high concept in a way or feels like, okay, here's this restriction we're placing. Um, but at the same time, I think that that actually goes to the sort of classic appeal of a lot of movies like this, not quite like Speed, because of course what it did was was very unique, but um, seeing, seeing men, especially because in this movie, Sandra Bullock's presence notwithstanding, seeing men do their jobs, feeling, mm-hmm. seeing work being done. I mean, and there is this sort of I don't know if it's like a Howard Hawksian kind of vibe to it that I get, but just, um, but it's like, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm making that comparison, but it's kind of Michael Mannish. Michael Mannish, too. It's a great process movie where you're seeing people work. And mm-hmm. um, and this this extends kind of perversely to Dennis Hopper's character, too, who the, the, the pride that he takes, the very kind of disturbing, um, you know, p- pleasure he takes in bomb making and the, the, when he talks about the satisfactions of that. And it's like, it's a great. Oh, there's something almost just kind of ex- existential about it because it is just one thing after another. This thing that Lane does say in his review, which I do agree with, and I think he says something about it like, oh, it's it's mindless, but that's great because a mind would have just gotten in the way. And, and it's like, and of course, it's like, it's not, he's not saying the movie's stupid. It's an incredibly intelligent movie, but he's saying that um, the movie, it's not that it doesn't give you time to think, but it, it gives you time to think just enough, you know, because you are so immersed in the experience and in the very well-structured screenplay with its one after another timing. And it's just, I, it's funny watching it. It's like, you know, you've seen it as many times as we have, you know what's coming, you know, it's literally around the bend, but it's like, okay, now it's this part of the movie and now it's this part of the movie and the, yeah. oh, the bus jump scene and oh, the, the layering of just of, of comedy um, and just lightness and, and the woohoo, you know, they, they made it. And then Beth Grant gets dragged under the wheels. It's just like, and it's just this, this, you know, puts you through the ringer. It, it's very, very beautiful. It's a beautifully structured movie, I think. Um, and, and that structure is sort of key to why I think it 
gets around what seems like a hurdle or a, 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 a an obstacle of you know oh how do you make a movie that is just this and and I think you know I, I'm sure you've talked to Jan Devon about this and how he I know devising that elevator prologue you know setting you know giving you all the character development and all the character setup you kind of need through that I, I'd be curious to see, it's like it'd be interesting to see a version of Speed that actually was just the bus I mean it would be whether that would be shorter or longer but I um I think it's just in kind of how it was received culturally that whole oh it's it's all on a bus thing that and I'm just speaking to my experience of what I remember that was because I think that's everyone agrees that's obviously the best part of the movie and it's such a long it's the midsection and it's so it's the longest and richest it's just it's obviously the, the heart and the meat of the film and that is what people remember and so mm -hmm. what feels like oh something I would not necessarily want to see or how are you how are you going to do that actually becomes the raison d'etre of the movie and what makes it so great yeah and i also think thematically there's some interesting things i mean look when you're as wrapped up in a movie as i am in this one you start to see things that maybe aren't really there but you know you convince yourself of it but i think about how the whole movie is in its most famous line pop quiz hotshot because i think it's very much a movie about thinking on your feet you know snap decisions hurried problem solving stay on or get off you know uh everybody on this side of the bus or we're going to tip over Floor it. It could be an incline. Or, you know, get off this going into the airport. It's, it's an instinctive movie. So anyway, yeah, I've just, I've always loved that idea. I mean, it's funny because that line and, oh God, and then to a lesser extent, the, you know, do not attempt to grow a brain. It's like, because he's, he's asserting to like, I'm the, I'm the mastermind here. But of course yeah. the truth is that Jack Traven is also very, very good. He's very intelligent too, and very good at thinking on his, on his feet and responding to each challenge yeah for sure well so since we're on it dennis hopper you know i can't interview him obviously he passed away in 2010 uh so that's a shame and it's unfortunate too because there isn't a lot out there of him talking about this movie like there's the nominal epk stuff around release but no one was asking dennis hopper about speed 10 years later or whatever so it's sort of my biggest regret and i definitely want to get people talking about him so let's talk about him and by the way, I'll be digging into the many near-miss casting choices that almost happened with this role in due time. But I find that he is such an interesting foil for Keanu Reeves. You know, there are a lot of neat, that-only-happened-in-speed things. One of them is Keanu's look with the tight haircut. You know, he never looked like that again. And another is Dennis Hopper playing this particular kind of character. I mean, he's played villains before, but nothing quite like this. And I mean, here's a guy who shared the screen with James Dean. You know, he's Mr. Method actor. And here he is, opposite a guy who, quite unfairly, was pegged as this wooden actor who couldn't act or whatever. You know, they're, they're just great foils. They are great foils. And it, it is funny, too, because I think in a way, to, to continue with my earlier point, he's always sort of putting down Travin's, you know, for his intelligence, like as if he's just like whatever, a set of muscles, whatever. But And I think this sort of actually plays into our, the culture has really come around to Keanu Reeves in a big way. And that is another great legacy. I mean, if you look at back at this too, it's like, I, I, I love his performance in this. And um, this was, but as you say, it's a very, it, it, he never looked like that again. Keanu Reeves as an action star is now just one of those things we don't even question. But at the time, of course, this was very new to him. Keanu Reeves, although widely embraced now and as one of our great screen actors, I absolutely believe. Um, the, the, the idea though, that the, the perceptions that we have of, oh, 
Keanu can't act or Keanu's dumb. You know, these, these, these negative perceptions we have of him. And it, it's funny to watch, this may just be a side thing, but like how Dennis Hopper is, he's sort of playing the, he, he, the way he puts down Travin in a way mm. almost feeds into some of those perceptions, those stereotypes. And it's just, it's just an interesting dynamic that I notice now with, with Hopper in particular, it's funny when you talk about Hopper's great villain roles and, you know, you, you talk about, you know, Blue Velvet, which I was obviously too, I was too young and to, to see Blue Velvet one bit at the time at the age that I saw I, it was many I saw Speed before Blue Velvet let's just put it that way but as you know, maybe many people our generation did and you know in Blue Velvet he's he's just on another level of kind of psychotic derangement he is so scary in this movie um things that Hopper does in this film and this is of course the script not just him but like just the 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 callousness of it like in a part apart from just even just the the maniacal um, brilliance of his of his the bomb plots that he mm-hmm. that he hatches, but just you know the, the the random killings, like the the killing of that. Even when he just randomly shoots the the, the subway driver in the back at the end, just like well, I'll take it from here. It's just like this is nothing new. It's like this is just what this is what action movie villains do. But I think it goes to the next level because it's Dennis Hopper and he's just so good at being that scary. I've talked about just the, the the pride that he takes, the need that he has for attention in this movie, and you realize it's tied into his yeah his his identity as a disgruntled uh, Atlanta police officer who never felt he got the credit, but just the way he's just you know we we kind of can joke about oh yeah uh, the speechifying villain or the monologuing villain, but Hopper plays takes that cliche and he believes it. Yeah, he's motivated. He makes you feel like every, like he just, he's like these flecks of spit that are coming out of his mouth as he's like, the way he holds that, the little, the the detonators, you know, he does a lot of that in the movie. And just mm-hmm. like, it's like, look at that. It's like, he, I, I just, he's, he is just every atom of that character. He, he is yeah. in it. Um, and it's just like, and, and this need to not just pull off these schemes and the need to sadistically kill people because that's important, but he needs people to appreciate him. And these all sound like cliches on the page, but, and maybe they are now, maybe it's just, they were less, of course they were less cliche back then, but I really think that Hopper just, um, it's, it's, it's one of his great, I mean, it's, it's maybe one of the, maybe in the scheme of his career it's one of the cheesier things he's done but i think it holds up brilliantly and and is 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 absolutely brilliant yeah and there's that line uh when in the subway where hopper calls keanu a punk and i love that too because if it's 1969 and the movie is easy rider dennis hopper is the punk so it's this sort of passing of the punk torch to the guy who's going to become mr cyberpunk with stuff like johnny mnemonic and the matrix so that's just fun and you know, I, I just I don't know if there would have been that same kind of metatextual quality with someone else. What happenstance to land Keanu Reeves in one of his, you know, who um, at that time had come off like Little Buddha or something. And there's just this freshness. I mean, he's just you see it's but everything that is wonderful about Keanu Reeves is there on screen in that performance. I mean, he's just this this there's this tremendous freshness, this sweetness, this kindness. This is the thing, too, about speed is like as ruthless as it is there is and what what makes me i moved by it for many reasons um the the fact that they don't make movies like this anymore and never will again is is absolutely one of them but it's kind of i was just thinking about this the other day because like you know sandra bullock who would later go on to star in a much worse 
movie about like road rage and about you know la and bring people in talking about crash of course and it's like which yeah. could have you know be an interesting title for this movie but not, <laughs> not to go off too on that I, I mentioned this just because watching this movie again last night this is the great la movie about the great diversity of people who live la and who get around in la to take the bus you know this is that effortless melting pot movie about los angeles yeah. um the fact that Keanu Reeves is half Asian too, which also just, you know, we talk about you know, representation and everything is, you know, this movie is, brings some of that too. I mean, it's, it was not, it was very understated at the time, but it's just, it's just one other thing. It's just one other as- small aspect of the film and something that I also find enormously appealing about Keanu Reeves um, and why he is, you know, he is not the typical action hero. As people said, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's muscular, he's very fit, but he's not like, you know, in a way that is like, he's not, Steven Seagal, obviously, he's not bulked up and threatening in, in in that way. He is this nice, smart guy who is just trying to help. He's not, he's going in there, there's this humility about him, this humility yeah. that is always very appealing about Keanu Reeves. And it dovetails with the, the kind of, even though he is a movie star and the actors on the bus are not, and the actors, many of whom I believe are, are were, right, were just non-professional actors who were cast and who spent several weeks or however long just on this bus every day, and you that sense of camaraderie that develops among them, you know, at, at the beginning, they are just, you know, a bunch of people who just, you know, leave me alone. Don't, you know, there's tensions and kind of the script. And, you know, maybe maybe some of that is a little, you know, over overdone or just sort of trying to, you know, see these people who are kind of seething at each other. And by the end, um, this sense of this little community, their lives have been changed. That is, and, and something about Keanu and Sandra, they are just that, they are movie stars. They are on another plane. But they have that, they have that earthy, just connect, you, you, you relate to them. Yeah, I mean, it gets back to that word, real, which, you know, comes up a lot when you discuss this movie. And of course, he did a number of his own stunts as well. And that goes a long way to see your lead actor actually wrangling with some of these precarious situations. And you think about how, like, now, you know, you know, someone like Tom Cruise, who is, you know, um, who prides himself on doing his his own stunts, many of them, most of them, all of them, I don't know. Um, and that's, you know, that is so much more of an anomaly these days than I think yeah. it was back then. And the fact that Keanu Reeves, who not really a, a natural action, you know, not someone who was the first person to come to mind for action roles, but the fact that he wanted to do that, um, and it's interesting. I did this one interview. Uh, you know, I watched the movie with DP Andre Barkoviak and first AC Vern Nobles. Like, that's how we did the interview. We watched the movie together, and it was awesome. But anyway, Vern was constantly pointing at the screen saying, we can't do that now. We can't do that now. You know, like, just the low ceiling for those police helicopters, for example. Or even something as simple as Keanu stepping from the bus onto the police SUV, you know, before he goes under to try and defuse the bomb insurance would just not allow for a lot of the things they did on this production nowadays. And regarding Tom Cruise, the anomaly on the acting side, yes, I guess on the directing side, it's Christopher Nolan, who is sort of committed to that practical effects wizardry, if you will. But with this movie, I like to say, if they even bothered to try to make it today, it would be a bus, like, on a gimbal in a soundstage, surrounded by LED screens, and just that rush of reality would be totally drained from its veins. And I'm trying to think too, it's like, because there is, you know, and when I watch, say, like, yeah, you know, I don't know, I guess Tom Cruise's recent and Chris McCory's recent Mission Impossible movies, which I think, you know, while pretty heavy on CG, I'm sure, you know, are 
are more invested in that kind of realism than many other blockbusters or action movies are. For me, I almost just think that there is just some intangible because it's like I actually do watch, I don't keep up with all of them, but you know, watching action movies now, I mean, on the big screen or on the small screen, there is just this kind of there's just this detachment that happens. You know, I, I just it's just very easy to detach. And there's something I try to always finger what pinpoint what is it about movies like speed. And speed in particular, that I don't know if it what is it? Is it just the amount of problem solving the way the same way that the movie is a constant problem solving experiment? And as filmmakers, too, they obviously had to solve all those problems for how they were going mm-hmm. to tell the story visually in as plausible way. Cause you just think, and, and I think that this is where Yondabon's genius as a cinematographer comes in, because just the coverage, the way the where the camera is placed, the fact that even a, a very untechnical person like myself can follow what's going on. I mean, just the, mm-hmm. the clarity of it, the, the things that, you know, the editing too, my God, I'm going to talk about the editing. I mean, just how well edited it is as well. Just the way, just the angles. It's just, I'm, I'm trying to think what, how you would make this movie with CG. And it just feels like, well, and a lot of people would possibly, well, why would you even? Yeah. Things that it deals in are so mundane. Or I mean, I Let think, alone having eight miles of empty freeway in Los Angeles to work with. <laughs> I, I mean, the fact that it's the movie is such, it, the, the realism, there's a joyous sense of spontaneity to this, to this movie. The fact that there, it, was, it was made, so much of it was made in reaction to just the, the topography and the landscape of Los Angeles mm-hmm. as it was. Oh, yeah, parts of the 110 or the 105 or whatever it was, the freeway that was, you know, not, and how that, it was not completed. And so how that informed the plot of the movie and, and mm-hmm. led to the, 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 the famous bus jumping uh, sequence. Um, and the subway was brand new too. It was kind of this mysterious thing for LA people at the time. And, and somewhat joke still is, but how, no. And the fact that the movie is just a great LA transit movie. I mean, it is a movie about rush hour. It is a movie about all of those things about road rage about it. it it's, you know, and of course every movie features, you know, high speed chases, but this is one where, I mean, what what other movie has so just deeply and comprehensively woven that into the fabric of of the story? Yeah. Um, that's another reason for my great affection for it too. I think we can both uh, you know uh, attest to that as as Angelinos. So, um, but yeah, absolutely. And regarding that note about the camera placement earlier, Jan has a great line about that, which feeds into all of this, and and that is he wanted it to be as if these things were happening, and a camera just happened to be there. And it's such a simple, maybe obvious point of view to take, but so much becomes informed out of that. And further to what you were saying about the CGI glut, um, you know, you you always end up backing yourself into a corner with this discussion because you don't want to, like, there's no dumping on the work or artistry of visual effects artists. Absolutely not. Uh, That is always to be respected. But nevertheless, and this is another Jan line, uh, Barkoviak said it too, but he watches movies today and he doesn't believe what he's looking at. And it's not because the work isn't great, it's because Asgard isn't a real place in Thor. You know that what you're looking at is not a reality, but when you watch Speed, it's like, holy shit, they did that. Like, I'm watching it unfold. It's as simple as that for the audience. And it's good for the actors, too. I mean, they're watching Keanu go under that bus. It takes the acting out of it. I mean, I've talked to every single actor alive who was on that bus, and even a couple who have sadly passed away since, and everyone was like, when we watched some of these stunts go down, we were not acting. We were reacting. And equality comes out of the film because of that. It, it, absolutely, Chris. I mean, it's, and it's not about knocking visual effects artistry at all. I, I would actually like to see more CG, if, if this is, you know, CG is just, it's just part of, obviously, the, the business of Hollywood. You know, I would like to see more 
of that artistry applied to perhaps stories like this that are a little more intimate, where the stakes are more present and ground level and tangible. You know, I, I don't have, you know, um, I do love, I, I do think you gain something by actually having the actors do this. Um, by actually, and it's funny when I talked to, when I had my own interview with Jan, it was like, you know, we started talking about this and talking about this idea of, you know, what is it, Jacques Rivette, who said, you know, every movie is kind of a documentary of its own making. Um, and that's true to varying degrees, depending on the movie, of course. But I think with speed, more so than with a lot of maybe actually, it's, I, I think because because of the un the unique problems that it posed, it actually does, it's exactly what you say. It's like, oh, that is real. That is that is yeah. they were they are enduring that. What he talked to me about, maybe he told you the story too. I'm sorry if it's repetitive, but um, you know, he talked to me about the scene when she's getting off the free or she's on the surface streets and she's hitting car after car, and it's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And mm -hmm. and he was like, She was really doing that. Like she mm -hmm. was hitting car after car, and that is why. When, when he was talking to me, it was just, it was all about capture, yes, capturing the actor's reactions, having that camera be there as if it were just eavesdropping. It's like, and the work that it does take to achieve that. And that's why you have to put your actors through some of those experiences authentically in order to get, you know, as you can be as good an actor as you can be. And yet there is something that is, you can't achieve unless it is actually on some level happening. That was just very eye-opening to me. It's like how so much of this is, it's, it's, the technicals of the bus stop, but it's also just getting the actors to getting the scenario to feel lived in to that extent and getting the yeah. impact, the physical impact of, yeah, of, of actually having a bus hit a row of car doors and side view mirrors and what, you know, all of that. Yeah. And going back to Jan's work as a DP, there's also a scene in Lethal Weapon 3, which Jan shot. It was actually his last film as a DP before becoming a director. And he wanted to shoot an explosion that they're running away from. Uh, they were just going to shoot it like you normally would, like shoot the explosion as a visual effects plate and then film the actors separately. And Jan was like, no, I, I want them to feel the heat. It's part of the reaction. And so he just stepped into Richard Donner, and Donner just totally agreed, and, and they did it that way. I think it's actually the, the scene after the closing credits uh, when they're running away from that building exploding. So in Speed, like when that first bus explodes, just the fact that that's all one shot. I mean, there's a Texas switch in there with the bus. It goes out of frame and then a different bus actually blows up. But, you know, the camera comes around and the bus explodes and Keanu's reaction is just so amped up as a result of it being right there down the street, you know? To that also, one of my, I mean, the explosions in this movie are just, are just fantastic. Let's just say it, you know, it's like obviously and with the movie where it's about a bomb on a bus, it's like they, they damn well better be. But the mm -hmm. second explosion, or the third, or, or the the second bus, you know, when the bus actually blows up and uh, and and hits the plane, I keep watching that too because it's like you notice he is so focused on the reactions of the passengers who just got off and are on another bus far enough away to be safe, but they they feel that impact and you look at their faces, you look at um, they're just the recoil and the 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 explosion. I mean, first off, he. He luxuriates in that explosion, too, in a way that I think, you know, I mean, we see explosions in movies, but I think there's something kind of, you know, this is, you know, it's, it's the money shot. It's there's something kind of orgiastic yeah. about it. Like, you know, let's get it from every angle. You know, it's like it is this great climax. And so it's, you know, you and so it is, you know, shot in, a, in, in it absolutely is the right decision. And then you see them that somewhat just that recoil where they're all just like and you can tell you can you, you are you put yourself right next to them you as if you were on that bus watching what might have happened to them 
feeling like I could have, oh my God. And I always think too about this, like wondering if like at the end of the day, because like if you were actually in this situation, maybe part of you is hoping or wanting to believe that it's a hoax, that there's no, that it's just a scare. There's no bomb. And suddenly it's real. It, it's real. And, and it has to be, they have to go through that in order to actually believe that they were in mortal danger. Like it's, it's actually this yeah. cathartic thing that needs to happen to them. And so they all say they felt that too, by the way, and the, the heat on their faces and the explosion was bigger than they thought it would be too. This is why I think that this is what, why great action filmmaking, there is something that is so human about that. I mean, there's so much action filmmaking is so dehumanized. Um, and because of that, the, the lack of any of that, that practical element, that, that real, that, that great emphasis on realism that that Jan de Bont and, and other directors of that era were so intent on capturing. I, I think that's so important. The other thing I talked to him about too was just my my favorite sequence, one that gets me actually very teared up and I, I watch it constantly, like almost in a loop sometimes. It's the scene right before the explosion when they're getting everyone off the bus. And this goes back to my sense of why I think this is a great community movie. Um, the way when they put that like that gangplank or whatever between it's just like, this is like again talk about insurance issues right i mean I, I, that is one of the things where like this is, and these are not trained actors it's like how they did they really it's like i actually asked them, like they really did this it's like because that's like really dangerous um, and it's like but there's something you know when you see them walking across and i love those shots of them just walking across and everyone is helping and people who couldn't stand each other and were, were, were angry at each other are helping each other and when alan ruck gets that you know almost falls and, and gets pulled up and, and, and he hugs him at the end. It's just like, mm -hmm. and just all of this combined with that great Mark Mancina score, um, just surging along. It's just, it's just one of my favorite sequences in anything. It's awesome. That is as big a payoff as anything in the film because it is showing you just the, it is actually showing you the felt value of human life and people love, you know, people coming together and helping each other. Oh, and, and followed immediately by, Keanu and Sandy, you know, making their daring escape, which is not only just thrilling, but one of the sexiest scenes, I think. It's like, it's truly, there's no, there's no sex in this movie, but that is the great romantic scene where they're sitting on that yeah. thing and it looks like this giant surfboard. The score explodes there too. Like it hasn't gone anywhere near that big. The it whole movie. is just, it's, it's reposodic. Yeah. They're hugging each other and they're just like, and they're clinging for dear life, but it is also, it's just the, the this, the embrace of it, it is just. Um, no, it's great. And that's a great shot too, by the way, naturally. Um, we, we should talk about the score a little bit, though, since we brought it up. I mean, I've talked to Mark Mancina, and we'll have a deep dive into the music with him down the line, but he's coming out of Hans Zimmer's shop at the time, and this is his first score. I mean, I love it. It's got the it's got the little flourishes where it's just kind of goosing it. It's a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, which I mm -hmm. didn't remember as well when I was listening to it again because um, of the past few. But I, I think just the main, it's that it's what it does when, when the score explodes is that main surge. And it, it has this kind of, I keep using the word romantic, but I, I actually think it's a very romantic score. And it has that kind of that operatic quality to it that mm -hmm. I think about when I think about like, say it's, it's a weird comparison to make, but like the score from like the last of the Mohicans or something, or just, or even mm -hmm. uh, Romeo and Juliet. It just, it has that kind of emotion to it. Um, the, 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 just the way, you know, you mm -hmm. see, I'm, I'm not a musicologist, but I, 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 it is just, um, it does things that you wouldn't expect. Like it goes places. It doesn't have to go. It overachieves, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. It's just the music really, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it adds so much. I mean, and you can mm -hmm. see a version of this movie working where perhaps some even more, just a more 
well, I don't know if it would work because I wouldn't change, I wouldn't really change much about this movie at all. But if you think about like sometimes where it feels like the score is just drowning out or competing with what is already so chaotic and noisy on the screen, but this does not do that. I mean, it really, when I think about speed, I actually do often think about just, I, I almost think of overhead shots of the bus. Yeah, all that great second unit stuff. There is something about just, this is a driving movie. And so, and it is, therefore, it's like, and you want music for that. And it, mm-hmm. it is just, and it is like, there is just something about the way the score surges that gives it such propulsiveness. And sometimes I feel like it is also capturing something of, to bring it back to thought processes, it feels like, I don't know. I, this is just, in, in, this gets very interpretive and maybe even a little abstract, but I feel like it is, it is just keyed into the, the, the cognitive, the, 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 the firing of synapses in these characters' brains. Yeah. There. It just, it's, it, 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 there is kind of a metronome quality at times, like a ticking clock. You can think of ticking clocks, but you, you know, and there's some of that for sure, but it is also, I think it is, it is keyed into that out, which, as you say, it, it is very much a movie about thinking and, and about um, and about problem solving and about um, trying to get stays, whether you're staying one step ahead or getting a step ahead of your next obstacle. It's great stuff. Well, last thing here, and this is sort of a catch all question. I guess the answer is probably everything we just said for 40 minutes. But this movie is a perennial, I think. It's always there for a new home video format, kind of like Universal with Jaws or Warner Brothers with Batman. It hit 4K a few years ago, so Disney seems to be taking some care of it. So the question is, what makes a movie like this endure? And kind of conversely, why is it taken for granted so much? Why is it only when people come back to it they go, oh oh yeah, this movie kicks ass? As opposed to it's right there in the mix with Die Hard and Terminator 2 and stuff of its era that we never blink an eye at over being sort of canonized and undeniable. Yeah, you know, it's really... It's interesting, Chris, and I have a I have a weird relationship to this movie because I, I as great as those other movies are that you mentioned, they're absolute indisputable, unassailable classics, no question. But speed means more to me than they do. Um, I really do think, you know, I I was revisiting this as part of my summer movie, you know, showdown uh, feature thing that we did last year, and I just knew that. Oh, when you asked me what my favorites, I mean, it is one of my favorite. Just I think movies of whatever you movies of the 90s or movies of any of you know hollywood entertainments but especially summer movies when we think about that particular category that we put some of these movies into and you're right speed is somewhat undervalued even though i don't think i mean i I think it's a masterpiece i really do and i that's a big word justin it's you know it is i mean it's uh i think people would maybe are reluctant to use that about about b movies or about about um you know movies that are nothing more nothing less than thrilling entertainments but it's it's not really a word i hesitate to use with this one it doesn't mean it's easy to do it i i that's the thing too i i don't think um i don't think that a movie like this can ever for all we talk about the planning um and the immense planning that and care and brain power that went into it when i talk about this kind of joyful spontaneity it's like and it reminds me of a time when movies were made more by the seat of their pants that is speed to me um i do mm-hmm. think you know and, and of course there's still you know mo- movies are still chaotic and difficult to make and you're always responding to the moment and that's true but i i do feel that with the advent of cgi and with with so much um so much is now worked out to an inch of its life or or test 
test marketed to within an, uh, within, within an inch of its life that it, it chokes the life out of it. I think yeah. with Speed, because it was relatively low budget, because the studio, you know, even though we're, yeah, sure, we're exacting and, and controlling as ever, they, they did sort of leave the filmmakers to their own devices. To, to, it allowed them to make something that was just so much better than anyone mm-hmm. thought, including maybe the people who were working on it. I think it speaks to also um, when you capture that kind of lightning in a bottle and, um, you know, obviously I know Speed had a sequel, which I, no, to this day I have not seen. And There was no sequel to this movie. We like to remember it that way. <laughs> but, you know, you talk about, you know, Terminator 2 is, is, is a fantastic sequel and it's not, it's not a knock on franchise movies. But I think, um, you know, it's funny. One of the things I'm sure that it, divorced from Speed, I'm sure, you know, Cruise Control is whatever. Maybe I, I doubt it's the worst movie ever, but I think it was just something about because there was something about speed that was just so pure. You, you, you of course you couldn't replicate it. Of course you would not. I mean, you you would want more movies like Speed, but you could not recapture Lightning in the Bottle in the same way. And so, I think it is just an extraordinary convergence um, with you know of these right elements. These two actors who are who are movie stars now. Maybe we're not quite. I. I Trying to remember, I mean, of course, they were not nobodies, but this movie made them stars in a way that they mm-hmm. had not known before. Um, Jan de Bont, you know, who I know is, uh, you know, his it, it is absolutely one of the highs of his career, and his career has had its ups and downs since then. But um, there was something, you know, a little bit untested about him too, only in the sense of like this was his first feature as a director. So a lot of extraordinarily talented people being trusted to play in the sandbox with, you know, and, and make something and, and, and they did. And it just um, exceeded expectations. I think there's something about that, about, you know, really talented people who were not household names yet being allowed to do something. I mean, I think that is, it's like, you know, there is something about that that is crucial think, to why this movie endures. You think maybe that's part of it, that when you go back to it, you're reminded because you're bringing with you the context of Sandra's career, the context of Keanu's action career, which is still going strong. And so now when you come back to it, it is seminal and you're reminded of that. It absolutely is all, for, for sure. And um, they, are, they have just such, I, I, I do think you, you rarely see that kind of electrifying screen chemistry that they have on screen. And it's, and again, it, it, it almost feels accidental because they're just doing stuff. They're just, yeah. they're not like, it's, they're, they're with a whole bunch of other people. It's not like they're isolated. It's like they're, they're just trying to fucking survive, right? It's just like, and it's yeah. just, and so all this chemistry, it just feels like it is just completely organic. It just wells up naturally out of this, they, they have that line throughout the film. And you know, it's funny, for a movie that is not necessarily prized for its dialogue, pop quiz, hot shot, notwithstanding, there are things about it that st- maybe it's just because we've seen it so many times, but to stick with you. And the thing when he said, like, you know, I've heard that, you know, relationships that, you know, born out of intense experiences don't last. And it's like, it's like oh, well, we'll have to base it on sex then, you know, it's just like, and there is, but I think that there is something about that, that kind of extreme, the extreme circumstances of it that just, they just generate this kind of chemistry that is, um, and I don't know. It's, you think you think about other actors who would have been, you know, maybe that would have been memorable too. But there is something that is just perfect about them. Well, it's interesting because he has such a passive quality as an actor, which really works for him playing a cop because he's just very observational, and she's kind of pulling things out of him in a way 
as far as the chemistry goes. So it makes for this really interesting dynamic. It really does. And it's, it's just the appeal too. And he is, he is not macho. He is not, um, you know, just some like, I know everything. He is like, let's just. He's not hitting on her at all. He's very respectful of her, of everybody, really. He's extremely respectful. He's like, he's calling her ma'am, ma'am. And it's finally like, don't call me ma'am. My name's Annie, whatever. You know, it's just, he's very, he's super respectful of everyone. Um, he is just trying, he's just trying to figure it out. He's trying to keep cal- everyone calm. And it's kind of funny. So th- that, maybe that's, that is the passivity of that character or just, or just the the, the, the kindness of that character um, relative to a lot of just, strutting male action heroes that were proliferating yeah. at the time and then she is like this rosalind russell you know smart talking you know sassy character actor who mm-hmm. and it just that they complement each other perfectly so it's like she and yet but then she's also like ah, she's driving this bus and so she's not just some dispo- she's doing she's playing there's also equality this is a movie where mm-hmm. there is equality between these two um where they are actually carrying the weight equally because she is driving the bus and she is like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and she's doing this immensely physically challenging stuff. So there is something also just very egalitarian um, about that. I, I just, you know, about the movie in terms of, I think in terms of race, I think in terms of gender. Um, yeah. It's sort of bulletproof for today. No one's coming for speed. And it is true. I mean, it's like, you know, we, we talk a lot more maybe about these issues now than we did back then. And here's a movie that just, you know, just by dint of just wanting to seem real, wanting to actually reflect something about the character of Los Angeles and the people who live in Los Angeles. It's a very, you know, it's, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're not, it's interesting too, because we don't get to know those characters particularly well, but just by dint of who they are and what they look like and just normal average looking people who, you know, and it is, it goes to realism and there is something that is representationally quite pleasing about that film that holds up uh, 30 years later. There really is. And along those lines of reality again, and I'll close with this, but uh, there's this great special feature they put out several years ago on the big two disc DVD set that they uh, finally ported over with all of this other great behind the scenes material on the 4k. It's sort of a diary from production designer, Jack Degovia, who we will hear from in later episodes as well. And he's talking through his very eloquent reasoning for the design elements of the film, and it's just screenshots of text, well worth reading through. And there's this quote that I love. He's talking about the subway sequence. And by the way, the subway, the third act, is really what I tend to think about when I talk about the confluence of filmmaking techniques in this film. Because there's this exquisite rear screen projection for the backgrounds when they're on top of the subway car, and then there's miniature and model work to depict the actual derailment of the thing, and then, you know, an actual full-size subway car crashing through onto Hollywood Boulevard. So anyway, Jack is talking about that sequence, and he says, quote, The process shots of the fight on the car roof were interesting. They used a combination of classic rear projection technique and inspired cheating to produce an exciting sequence which today would be done with boring perfection. Boring perfection, I love that. In front of a green screen using computer-generated effects. And to me, that really says it. You know, there's a shaggy dog quality to this movie. There are shots, and I never would have noticed this if Barkoviak hadn't pointed it out to me. You can see cameras mounted on the bus in certain shots. There are shots where the camera is cranked to make the bus look like it's moving faster than it really is, but in the background, if you look, people are like moving hilariously fast because of the cranked camera. But you're not looking there. Your eye is diverted. And it doesn't matter. You can see a cable towing the bus that explodes at the beginning if you're looking for it. And this idea of boring perfection is true because 
and, and this isn't true across the board because I do think there's a certain skill set to, you know, throwing some dirt on it. But the pursuit is often all about just nailing it and getting it perfect. And there's just something about the desire to capture chaos and, and all its imperfection that makes this movie stand out. So anyway, I just thought that was a great quote from Jack. That is a great quote. And it's just this, there's a rough edgedness to it. And I don't know if this is true of just a lot, you know, when you watch older movies now, and it is funny talking about this, like to think that, oh yeah, what is what was came out in the 90s now qualifies as older and from, in fact, from, an, from a previous era. Um, something sobering about that. And it's just like, because it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like that long ago, and yet it was. And there's just, it's very, this is very reductive to say, it's just, things just look, obviously things just look different. Uh, whether that's because more movies were shot on film or whether because it's just, but the, the texture of things looks looks different. And sometimes things, of course, look degraded and they look older and, and, and not as good quality, but something like speed, there is just a, a vibrant kind of just physicality, like just a, there's, but it's a rough kind of physicality where it's just, I don't know. It's just, you just don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think the Nolans of the world and, you know, not, not making movies like speed, but they are trying to capture something of that in their own way. I mean, you can't mm -hmm. capture the, the exact same thing, but there is this pristineness about so much uh, yeah. contemporary blockbuster making it just, and it's, it's, it's beautiful in its way and it, it can serve the aims of those movies, but you're telling a story like this. And when you are just, um, I mean, just to come back to the realism of it, I mean, it is just, there is just no replacement for that. Um, and I just, I don't know. I don't know how you would, yeah, I, I, it's not like I want them to make speed again because there's just no doing that. But I, I do want, I, I, when I look for, I, watching it again last night, I, I, I felt myself very, you know, intensely nostalgic for it and wanting to see something that gets that kind of, Hi, you know, it, does, it won't be the identical movie, but something that recaptures something of that movie's spirit of just like where a movie that is about as simple as a bomb on a bus that can't go, that can't drop below us. It's just, it's just so ridiculous. I mean, it feels like the prompt yeah. for like a, like a math question or something. And it's like, I, and yet you watch this movie and you actually feel like just from kind of just a dumb thing like that. And they have just opened up amazing possibilities um i think it's as simple as and i don't want to be glib or anything but i think it's as simple as putting the budgetary confines on movies like that again because they really don't have that bracket anymore either you're going for the tiny budget movie that you're hoping will bring back returns or the 150 million dollar movie that you're praying is a home run and i don't know if you can just make another movie like this for 30 million or 40 million this kind of stricture breeds creativity and breeds a certain sort of energy. It really does. I think it's as simple as that. I mean, I, I don't know what this business will look like going forward. Obviously, just in the last few years, it's vastly different than it was. But if we could get to a place where you're trying to hit these doubles and triples, I don't know. I mean, all I do know is so much of what I see in this space today, with a few exceptions, is absolutely numbing. And it's so odd, because speed, by rights, should be numbing. But it's not. No, it's not. It is the opposite. It is, it is so, I mean, it is, it's thrilling. It is, it, but it, it does not get old. Um, and it is, it is a movie that heightens your perception and heightens your reactions. And that makes you, I, I keep coming back to just the emotion of it. It makes you feel deeply. I am mm -hmm. deeply moved by this, by, by speed. I really am. I, yeah. I think it's, I think it's just a, uh, and maybe that's a product partly of nostalgia, yeah. sure. But I, 
but you know, plenty of my nostalgia fetish objects, whatever, don't hold up, and this one does. He's absolutely right, folks, and that's why we're here. That's Justin Chang with the Los Angeles Times. So, hopefully with that, you have thoroughly marinated in speed and you're ready to start cooking with me. Jesus, these metaphors will get out of control, and I apologize in advance. Anyway, this will certainly be one of the longer episodes of this podcast, but I thought it was worth it to tee us up for what's to come. From here, we're going to start digging into the making of speed with its various participants. So, with that in mind... Next week on 50 miles per hour. Every story has a beginning, so where does speed story begin? It begins on the page. It was very much a concept-driven enterprise. It was an exercise in structure. I'll talk to screenwriter Graham Yost about conceiving and writing speed more than 30 years ago. I'd met Allison Lyon, and we were talking about this other idea I had about a crisis line and this sort of fucked up thriller narrative from that, and she was interested, and we were sort of developing it. And then I said, you know, I've got this idea about this bomb on a bus. We'll talk about where he was in his career as a TV writer and what inspired him to conjure this crazy story of a bus that has to maintain speed in rush hour traffic, or it'll explode. It was fun to puzzle it out. How can I make it worse? How can I, how can I get them to almost succeed and then the bad guy has thought of something? And just keep on going at it. All of that and more next week right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.